just keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>
I, I think a lot of people think entrepreneurship is this thing you do, but in fact, it's really a way you should be thinking. And um, I, I know I'm probably going to get some eye rolls on this, but I, I think like the, the type of thinking you have to be able to do as an entrepreneur starting or growing a business is oddly similar to, uh, you know, the kind of thinking you got to have to find the right price on a flight. <laughs> like it's, it, there, there's, you know, I'm half joking and someday I'll articulate that in a way that more people can understand. <laughs> well, well you, you used to say something, I'm sure you still say, it. I just haven't heard you say it on the tech tour because we, you know, we, we haven't done that in, in a hot minute, but yeah, you know, I remember when I first heard you say it and I almost disregarded it, but you used to say that you, and I, I won't get the wording right, but you used to comment on the, on the tour when you were up on the stump that the least secure job you have is when you're working for some large company and that you actually have more security when you're out there doing your own thing. And it was the whole, the, there was the premise of you never see the, the layoff coming until it's there. Whereas if you're in control of the company, you, you have you know, a lot more control over your future. And you know, at the time when you said it, it was like, ah, eh, you know, I'm not sure. And I, I hadn't really thought about it, but I think it gets to something that you just said, which is reminding me of you saying it just about this concept of it, it of, entrepreneurism as as a thought process you can be an entrepreneur and work for a big company whether you have a side hustle or not it's more about how you think about your future and how you think about what you can control and can't control and how to focus on those things you can control to move ahead yeah that's right i mean it's not just to clarify or just to maybe uh, push back on what you just said there or just how you said it it's not as important to own the company i mean you can sure you're right like factually if you own the company obviously you you control the path, but I think it's not necessary either. I think that, um, you know, the, the, the important bit here is to just kind of, you know, just understand that there's more to it than that. And I, the thing I used to say on the tech tour quite a bit, and maybe even now, nowadays too, is I just say like, you know, look, ultimately, who do you trust more yourself or somebody else? Because as it relates to layoffs, for example, it's not often directly related to your performance or lack of performance. It's, it's that, potentially tied together with some other thing that's way out of your control, which could be the macro economy. It could be some other team at your company is not hitting their targets and now the whole company's in trouble. So yeah, I mean, I think if anything, it's just more and more important to just understand that you have to think entrepreneurially and and nobody's coming to nobody's coming to save you. People think having a job is safe and entrepreneurship is risky when actually the opposite is true. Yeah. You said it so much better than I said it. It's probably because that's how you always say it. <laughs> <laughs> so next time we have this moment, I'm just gonna say, "Can you say that thing about risk and safety that I won't so that I won't say right?" <laughs> My friend Kim says that I got the gift of gab, which you know I'm still not sure if she uh, means that as a compliment or not. But I know she listens to this, and I will see if she emails me uh, right after this to to clarify. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those, like, is that a feature or a bug? And <laughs> yeah, I would true. say, why can't it be both? That's, right. that's exactly right. <laughs> why can't it be both? <laughs> we are going to dig into Q2, but before that, um, you know, you and I were talking about this at pre-show and there were some other stuff that we talked about. There's some stuff about a, a company doing sustainable jet fuel that we want to talk a bit about because we think it's a good example uh, of of how to how to look at the landscape of potential customers. Um, there's some stuff about Sequoia and where they're focused. But I was listening to listening to a recent episode of This Week in Startups, which is a, a podcast that Jason Kalkanis co-hosts, and 
I think it's a good podcast for folks who want to get a better idea of the landscape of you know of what's out there. Um, Jason and, um, and his co-host have a real interesting run of different guests, um, and so it's it, there's definitely a variety there. And and Molly, who co-hosted with him, has a different take on things than Jason does at times. But in this specific instance, he was interviewing somebody in the VC world, a guy named Mark Schuster, who's uh, with Upfront Ventures. And I, I don't think I've ever met Mark, uh, but I certainly know of him. One of the things he was saying that, that just sort of, I would say, honestly, took me by surprise uh, and had me take a step back and think about it. He was talking about where they invest in size of rounds and all that stuff and how that's changing and how it's changed over time. But the comments he was making was that they said that, that their first checks are generally at the seed level with companies and that for them, a good check size for a seed investment is between three and five million with their average check being three and a half million. and when I think back to when we first started investing, a seed round was three million in total, and it just like it really struck me how the terms have changed. Okay, so so the cynical part of me just listens to that, and I'm like feeling wholly inadequate as an investor because I'm like, I'm like, wait a second, are seed rounds really that big? But you're you're right. I mean, I I, I remember when I first started investing that you know quote unquote seed was just sort of loosely around less than a million dollars. And that something bigger than that was beyond that. That was like a series A. I mean, there, there just wasn't as much innovation, I suppose, in in naming your round. My, so I wrote this blog post a couple of years ago that, for whatever reason, still drives a lot of traffic to my site. And it, it, it's, it's this topic where I say that founders should not name their round because of this very point that that the interpretation is just so widely varying across the country. So I, I always tell our founders to just not, not even name it. So yeah, I mean, like a seed round to us means something different to than it does to Mark Suster, uh, than it does to like some angel group in the Midwest. And so that's really hard for founders to navigate. I think you're almost better off just saying we're raising X amount of dollars. And when somebody says, oh, is that your pre-seed or your bridge, whatever they want to call it, I always tell founders, just, just respond with, you can call it whatever you want but we're raising this much money and here's what we plan to do. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is wild uh, how, how times have changed. I, yeah. I suppose uh, 10 years from now with b- between like all of the, inter- the, the interpretation and probably inflation, a seed round will be like a hundred million bucks, but <laughs> that's a separate story. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you're right. And I think, you know, you, you talked about, um, you've said this a lot and it's something that I say a lot too. We say it differently, but the general gist of it is, is along the lines of, you know, we always hate when people say, you know, Hey, I've got this product. It's the Uber of X or we're the Netflix of such and such. And that we really want founders to be talking more in terms of, Hey, I've got this company and here's the problem that we're solving. And these are the people that are paying me money to solve it. And I think, I think that 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 theory and that methodology sort of plays in here to your comments about naming your round. It's it's if you're looking for the right investors and you're interviewing the right investors and Mark made some comments about this when he was on the show, you want to interview your investors because what you're trying to find is you're trying to find a fit for where the company is at that moment. And so, you know, whether it's whether you call it a Mm -hmm. seed or a pre-seed or an A or a B or whatever, to your point, hey, look, I'm raising money. This is how much I'm raising, and this is what I want to accomplish with the cash. Those are the key points. The you know the rest of it is window dressing for you know people who run funds. I do think there's something to what you just said there that a lot of the terms and jargon used in venture capital tend to be ways that venture firms try to differentiate themselves. 
when fundamentally they're not all that differentiated. And I think founders just need to kind of yeah. try to stay above that fray. If it's your first round, for example, you're trying to raise enough money to go hit some milestones, ideally with partners that can also participate in future rounds. I mean, that that is the ideal scenario. Um, and so to your point, you, you want to kind of like try to get, try, try to stay out of that marketing fray and really just, just try to build a relationship and kind of get a sense of long-term because, because the absolute worst thing you could do aside from not raise money is raise money from folks that can't help you in that next round. And now all of a sudden you're back to square one, 18 months later, trying to build new relationships with the entire, you know, group of investors. Yeah. He, uh, he, he tells a story in there that you and I have talked about, um, the, the general concept in terms of matching, you know, founders to investors. And it was the loose gist of the story was something along the lines of, you know, they were an investor in a company that had reached their next uh, milestone and was fundraising. And instead of going out and finding, you know, six or seven investors or 10 or 12 or whatever to fill the next round, a, a very large institutional investor showed up to, to take the whole round, like 30 million bucks. And the company had a little bit of a, uh, of a hiccup and they were working on a reset and trying to reposition stuff like that. And this large institutional investor that had put in this large slug of money, 30 million, was just agitating in every board right. meeting to sell the company because they had a liquidation preference and they just wanted to get the donut off of the investor roles. And so if they could just liquidate the company and get their 30 mil back, even if they didn't make a profit on it, that that was better for them than having to disclose to their investors. And it's I'm not saying they're wrong because I don't know the situation, but I think it just goes back to founders making sure that the investors that they're aligning themselves with, that everybody really is aligned um, and that and that you know everybody knows the same goal is that sometimes, yeah, sometimes you do have to pivot. Well, the summary of all that is, is not all investor dollars are actually the same. Yes. <laughs> So maybe a longer conversation for a later episode, but it's, it's, it's just nuanced because you have to take into account who can participate with you over the long term, but also where they are in terms of the fund they're actually investing out of, you know, in that case, yeah. that particular investor, I don't know them, but that behavior sort of hints that maybe they're at the end of the investing cycle for that fund and they need to show a win. So a win's a win, even if it's not a huge multiple, um, you know, yeah. co conversely, somebody that just closed a fund a year ago is probably still thinking on 10 year horizons and, and, you know, can support you for longer. So l longer, more nuanced conversation at some point, but uh, I, for whatever it's worth, uh, for the record, uh, I don't know the seed round is three to $5 million. I have yet to be in a seed round that's that size. So yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, yeah, but also take that with a grain of sand because I work out of an office in my basement and, uh, <laughs> There's a bunch of kids' toys strewn about, so. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the about the, the Q2 planning topic that you brought up, um, which I think is really interesting. So just just to set this up, you had texted me about this, asking what we were seeing for you know companies in our portfolio and what they were planning in Q2, and and so it's it, it there's a bunch of different pieces here, but. We're at an interesting inflection point where companies are deciding, do they conserve cash? Do they press harder in certain areas? Do they make key strategic hires? You know, where should they be spending their marketing dollars? You know, it's, it's obviously a great time to attack your competitors, but you have to make sure you survive. And so there's a bunch of interesting, interesting trade-offs right here. And, and I've seen some stuff um, with our portfolio companies I can comment on, but um, but I see you nodding your head, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pause there for a second to to pull that thought out of you. Well, you know, it's here we are. You know, this episode's gonna come out at the beginning of March, 
and I just got back from uh, you know our, our our quarterly planning meeting as well, and uh, I'm also getting emails. The, the quarterly planning meeting that you still won't tell the listeners about. Yeah, it's for my my. Yes, your ghost company. Yes, for well, you. Yeah. Yes, this, uh, perfect. You know what? From now on, until you release it, I will ask you for a status on Casper every morning. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. So so you know I, I'm in that mindset because I just got back from a you know four day session down there, but also uh, I'm getting a lot of emails from our portfolio uh, about you know their plans uh, for Q2 and and for full you know disclosure. Look, I, when when I'm investing in our portfolio companies, I I own like five percent or less. You know, like to your point about being a ninety ten investor or, or a yeah. ten ninety, I'm I'm definitely on the ten ninety side. So they don't have to listen to me, but you know, sometimes they'll email for advice. And I, I would say that uh, you know what I'm seeing, anyways, is anecdotally, is people are either on one extreme or the other. And I'm going to try to lay out the case for you know somewhere in the middle. So. What I'm seeing in terms of like extremes is I'm seeing some founders in the portfolio like really leaning towards conservative plans for Q2, hold the burn down, you know, no capital investments into any sort of growth, just sort of keeping it going and wait and see what happens, that sort of thing. And then on the other hand, I'm seeing some companies that are just like, burn the ships, let's go, let's go, you know? And as with most things, being on the extremes is probably not a good idea. I think that, for example, when I think about, you know, uh, our, our company, we are going to invest heavily in recruiting because we know there's a lot of good talent out there that, that uh, right now that might be, um, you know, worried uh, about, you know, impending layoffs and stuff like that. But we're also, uh, um, you know, we've sort of prioritized a couple of our growth plans around things that we think that not only our competitors aren't thinking about, but things that could also drive significant revenue to us and to our partners. So, I mean, I can, I can tell you more about that, but I think the truth is somewhere in the middle uh, when it comes to Q2 planning Given what's going on in the economy, given what's going on with you know the 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 landscape in terms of competitors, if you're raising money, that too. Like in our case, for example, a lot of the language, like one of the things we're doing in Q2 is launching a new marketing site with a lot more pointed language around the the economic value they get out of out of using us. You know, again, I'm <laughs> I can only say so much without without like giving it away. But I think the point is though is that you kind of have to just. <laughs> I think when it comes down to quarterly planning, you know, and, and thinking about the strategy to which you're trying to plan against, that's where the, the nuance is right now. Because the question is not, how do you do everything that you think you ought to do? The question really is, is what are the top three things that, you know, you should be doing for marketing, for sales, for operations, for finance to kind of get you to where you need to be? Um, like, I think we can still hold our profit margins where they are or very close to where they are. As long as we, you know, focus on these top two or three sales channels that seem to be working best for us. So anyway, like the, the way I think about it is, is that you've got to find a way to make sure you're right there somewhere in the middle. And if that, if you don't know what that means, I think what it means is, is that if you're going to invest in anything, it should be in sales and maybe marketing, but like, look, we're bootstrapped. So for us, we don't want to raise money, uh, but sales kind of solves a lot of that, you know, sales drives margins or, or uh, profits and profits help us pay for more stuff. If you've raised money, even more so, you have to focus on growth. Uh, you can't, you're not going to get too much extra credit for saving all your money, you know? So anyway, let me, let me pause there. Cause I'll tell you more if you want. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing a couple of things. The first off that I'm seeing a lot of 
I would say so a lot. I see a number of portfolio companies that are strategically hiring. So whether it's a, a key social media person or a, a data scientist or a very key development piece, I've had a number of companies that have said that they've been, you know, sort of kicking the tires on expanding their headcount. And because they found who they believed was the absolute right fit, they went ahead and had that person. And in a lot of those cases, the hires that they've made are folks who were working for some of those big companies. In fact, one of our portfolio companies hired someone who was laid off from Twitter. So I'm definitely seeing the strategic hiring piece. I think, you know, somebody mentioned to me in passing, and I don't think that they had heard, I don't think they they listened to the pod, but they um, they talked about this philosophy that you, you and I have talked about ad nauseum on the show about Apple's decision with ASCAP not to track and how that's changed targeting advertising in apps like Facebook and Instagram. And they talked about that they um, they had decided to commit a bunch of money to building out some email marketing. They were going to try to to do some very small targeted uh, email campaigns and that they had also done some boots on the ground stuff, putting physical people in where they believed that there were a, you know, a big chunk of customers. And so, you know, that that could certainly be just spurred by the fact that their traditional ways of, of marketing don't work as well anymore because of ASCAP not to track. But I also think that, you know, they're looking at in those specific instances, they're looking at ways that they can pick up share from competitors who I wouldn't say are dormant, but definitely aren't as aggressive right now in marketing. And and so I, those are the two things I, I'd say I've seen the most so far over the past 30 or 60 days when I read you know, monthly investor updates and what people are contemplating for yeah, Q2 and yeah. beyond. Well, I, I think... Um... I, again, like it's so easy to armchair quarterback everybody else's strategy, right? But I, I think this this goes back to what it's not so important, you know, for for us to try to tell anybody what to do, as much as it is important to to maybe like just share how we think about this stuff and then let people draw their own conclusions. So, but but that being said, though, whether you're running your company or you're gainfully employed somewhere else, either way, you should, you know, I think there's some value in doing this sort of quarterly look. Uh, at your business or or your own career, and, and um, so uh, that being said, though I will say I don't know if this will trigger any thoughts on your end, but one other sort of thing that I've been doing recently is even though we're not talking about the company publicly that much, I've been picking up the phone and talking um, and small uh, you know seed funds that are in the in the space and just kind of like laying the groundwork, like hey, here's what I'm doing, here's where we're at, and here's the uncomfortable part. Hey, if you know anybody that's uh, running out of cash, let me know. Because if it's a good fit, I'm not above the aqua hire, you know. And and so that that's it's not really spoken about very often. And then maybe nothing will come of that. But like that's the kind of stuff that you know, if depending on what your growth plans are, that's the kind of stuff that might be worth trying out. So let me stop though there. And what, what, what I'm curious, what your gut reaction is to that idea? Yeah, I think you know, I think it really falls under this broad heading that we've said of of in an, in a market like this, you know, where capital is harder to come by for companies. I, I think now is an excellent time to try things to see if they work. And to your point of you know reaching out to folks to find you know aqua hires, uh, you know. Maybe it's something you wouldn't have done. It's almost certainly something you wouldn't have done 18 months ago because the, right. it was a very different market. And so I, I would agree that, you know, where where obviously you could look for folks on LinkedIn and other platforms to find where they've been laid off from. If it's an investor that you know that you have a relationship with, then 
the chances that they're going to refer someone to you that they think sucks is, you know, is low. So you're de-risking that next hire. You shared that article a handful of episodes ago where where we talked about how Google and Microsoft, if I remember correctly, were um, were using uh, performance reviews to weed people right. out. And the people that were getting laid off were the people that had the worst performance reviews. So just finding someone who's laid off isn't necessarily the right uh, right way to go about it. And, I, you know, I've always felt like a warm lead to bring someone into a company is a great way to do it. Yeah. I'm I'm probably not going to make any friends with this statement though, but first of all, I'll just say with a, as a preface here, like obviously there's a lot of good people that got laid off, and depending on which reports you believe, it's somewhere between 250,000 and 400,000 people that have been let go uh, in the last year. When in doubt, you're better off recruiting than hiring, and and that's a subtle but really important difference. Like I think you know hiring is the act of, you know, opening the front door, see who throws their resume through the, through the little, you know, opening. And then you try to find the right one and, and maybe they're laid off, maybe they're not, but they're coming to you, um, to kind of, uh, figure out who to pick, you know, recruiting on the other hand is sort of reaching out to somebody that doesn't even know they're on the hunt, you know, that doesn't even think they need to be looking for a gig and, and trying to, uh, win them over with your mission and your goals and like sort of the opportunity that you've got, not just cash, but something bigger. And right now, recruiting, I think, is a lot easier than hiring because, you know, with hiring, you're getting hit with a lot of noise and you got to find the signal within that. It's just a lot. Recruiting is less hard right now because A, you get to pick who you're going after, but B, depending on the company they're at, they're probably already subtly concerned about whether they might be next, you know? And so, so I, I think we talked about this on a couple episodes ago that two or three years ago to get top talent, you had to have top dollar. And that's just not the only thing anymore. There are other ways to win a, a great candidate now and recruiting. I think like right now where we are in 2023, you're better off recruiting than hiring. And, and I know that's not going to win me very many friends, but Unfortunately, that's sort of where we're at right now, you know, and then that, again, speaks to the beginning of this episode. Why should everybody be thinking entrepreneurially? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that actually is a nice dovetail to something that I had put in our chat for the future. So we won't have time to discuss it today. But this concept of Amazon, um, you know, working out a way for uh, their employees to use their Amazon stock as collateral for home loans and, you know, what that does to be able to recruit internally. Um, uh, you know, you, you mentioned something I just want to loop back on. You talked about, you know, what you're doing internally with the company and, you know, different strategies that you're looking at for, you know, what's coming up on the horizon and how to think about things. And I think back to somebody I know is not a podcast listener, one of my mentors in one of my first jobs you know, said, as I left working for him in college, he grabbed me on the way out the door and put these two big, massive hands on my shoulders. He says, wherever you're going next, you don't always have to ask your boss why, because I used to ask why on everything. And I would just say to your point about what you should be doing right now, it's the best time, uh, you know, in a down market, it's the best time to ask why you're doing everything inside your company and make sure that it justifies whatever time, money, or energy you're putting it into right now, because now is the time to get ahead of your competitors. And if you don't think you have the time to upset the apple cart on something that's dragging the company down and keeping you from growing, you're 100% wrong. Now is the time to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, I know we're running short on time here, but on that note, look, most people listening to this are still in the period of their company and their career where growth still is possible. Like classic 80-20 rule here, 80% of your efforts should, should be uh, focused on growth right now. But that 20% of effort in terms of cost cutting 
Um, I'll, I'll share what that means for me in case that helps other people. We went ahead and canceled all automatic renewals on annual contracts for our vendors. Obviously bought the annual version to get two months free. You know, you know, you know what I'm talking about, how SaaS companies do that. We just went in and had all of them. Uh, we just unchecked the box for auto renewal. And, you know, the thinking there is, is that worst case scenario, when that annual renewal comes up, we are good with it. And we'll just kind of re-up to the annual again because we're going to keep using it. But in the best case, look, you know, the economy is what it is. Maybe we'll have a little bit more room to negotiate. So if we want to keep it, maybe at that point, we're able to say, hey, listen, you know, we're all in a pickle here. And rather than get two months free for the next year, why don't we do four? I, I know. Right. So a little tactics like that could be worth trying out right about now. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree. I'm probably not going to make any friends on this episode. So <laughs> <laughs> at least not for people you're paying for SAS. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. This is probably why I need to not say the company's name because our vendors are going to hate us. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, well, anyway, uh, where are you at? You traveling this week or what's the plan? I am. Yeah. Now that we've got this school board thing, hopefully behind us, we are uh, booking the tickets fast and furious. I have uh, got some, some Vegas, some California and, uh, and just to make you jealous, I am sneaking down to Disney this weekend for a Tron <sighs> preview, getting to ride the new Tron coaster before it opens. Uh, good for you. We got spring break coming up for the kids. So, uh, couple weeks we'll be heading down to disney for a couple days and then jumping on the disney wish for a couple days so it's gonna be fun love it yeah love it love it one day when i grow up uh like you ed i will i will go to disney on a whim on a weekend but (laughs) (laughs) for for now i will live my life uh you know trying to navigate one child's nap time to the next (laughs) there you go Like a like Casey Kasem used to say back in the day on America's Top Forty, as I date myself, just keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> let's just leave it right there. There you go, Jeremiah. You're <laughs> yeah, welcome. Let's just leave There's it right there. Open. <laughs> All right, man. We'll have a wonderful week, and uh, I'm glad for uh, happy for your kids, and uh, glad you're not in jail. So, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> All right, man. We'll have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. All right.